Well, I've been given a, da- a daunting challenge or assignment tonight to speak to you on the preservation of the Bible, which is somewhat like trying to put my arms around the Pacific Ocean. It is an enormous subject, and there is so much that I want to say and needs to be said, but my time is very limited. And so just to dive right into this, if you would take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13, and verse 31 is my text to just begin to to launch into this subject, the words of Christ, Mark 13, verse 31, as we consider the preservation of the Bible Jesus, in this discourse, the Mount Olivet Discourse, writes, "'Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away.'" This speaks to the indestructibility of the Word of God, and it promises the unending duration of the truth contained in the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, "'Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, not just for time, but throughout all eternity future. God's word is settled, it is true, and it will never fade away. In Psalm 119, verse 160, the psalmist writes, every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Of course, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades away, but the Word of our God endures forever. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That is a very significant text. And Jesus went on to say, and on another occasion, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the letter of the law of the law to fail. What that is saying is that in written form, which we have in front of us tonight that not one stroke of one letter, of one word, of one sentence shall pass away until it is all accomplished and it will endure forever and ever. This preservation of the written Word of God is guaranteed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and our believing this is a matter of lordship, because if Jesus is wrong about this, He cannot be our Savior. He would be a fallible Savior if He was wrong about the preservation of the written Word of God throughout all of the ages to come. And so I want to ask you this question as we begin our time together tonight. How is it that over 20 centuries after the New Testament was written, that you're holding an English Bible in your lap? Did it just drop out of heaven into your hands, leather-bound? Of course not. So how did this happen? 
As you know, the Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years, from approximately 14 B.C. until 400 B.C. The book of Job could be even older. And the New Testament was written over the course of some 50 years, from A.D. 50 until A.D. approximately 95. And in all, it took 1,500 years for the Bible to be written by over 40 different authors in 66 different books, writing on three different continents, writing in three different languages, Hebrew, a few chapters of Aramaic in the Old Testament, and Greek in the New Testament. We do not have any of the original autographs with which the Word of God was first written. In God's stunning genius and brilliance, He designed that the autographs would be gone, and all that we would have is copies of copies that have been passed down to us. Why is that brilliant on God's part? Because if if we still had the original autographs, which are the original writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Isaiah, David, Moses, someone could go in and make an alteration of that one original copy, and therefore every translation of the Bible since would be marred. But in God's brilliance, there have been hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of copies made of those original autographs such that no one can tinker with the Word of God for there to be an alteration. On top of that, who would have the possession of these original autographs? Would they belong to the Baptists? I mean, they do have more money. Uh, Would it belong to the Presbyterians or to the independents? And so, in God's brilliance, we do not have what was first written, but copies of copies. In the second through the fourth century, the Bible began to be translated into other languages. And the Bible was translated into Syriac in Syria and Coptic in northern Africa, as well as in Latin. In the year 382, a Latin translation of the Bible was made by Jerome and a team of translation scholars that came to be known as the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate would be the Bible of choice basically for the next thousand years, from the 4th century into the 14th century. It would be in the 1200s that the Bible would be divided by chapters. There were no chapter divisions until approximately 1220. And just a footnote, there were no verse divisions until the 1550s. But a man named John Wycliffe in the 14th century was the first man to translate the Bible into the English language. He was a stunningly brilliant scholar. He was the leading um, professor at Oxford when Oxford was the leading university of, of all of England. He had such a command of knowledge and a brilliant mind that he would represent the King of England and Europe for negotiations. And he came to understand that the average person does not know Latin. The only Bible there was, was a Latin Bible. Latin was the language of the classroom. 
It was the language of the few who could go to college. But for the average person, they had no access to the Bible. And so John Wycliffe set about translating the Bible for the first time, the entire Bible, into the English language. At that time, it was modern, excuse me, Middle English. He was joined by other Oxford scholars, some of the finest minds of the day. And in the year 1382, there was completed the first English Bible. There were hindrances to Wycliffe's translation into English. It was translated from the Latin Vulgate, which was the Bible that had been used for a thousand years. There were imprecise translations into that Latin Vulgate such that to translate out of the Latin into English, you're working with an inferior text. You're not translating out of the language of Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, and Wycliffe was unable to work out of the Greek that the New Testament was written in. Further, Wycliffe's Bible was hand-copied. The printing press has not yet been invented. So, thus, of the Wycliffe Bible, they were few in number. They were enormously large in size. They were cumbersome to carry and very expensive to purchase. So, very few people who spoke the English language had any access whatsoever to a Bible. In fact, even those priests in the Catholic Church were grossly ignorant of the Word of God themselves and had no access to a Bible. Wycliffe's Bible was carried by men known as Lollards who went out on foot throughout England preaching the Word of God and carrying individual pages of Wycliffe's Bible and it became really the, the underground stream for the Word of God until the time of the Reformation. There began to be much pushback in England to Wycliffe's Bible. And in the year 1401, Parliament passed legislation known as the Burning of Heretics, which made it a capital crime against the throne of England worthy of death for anyone to translate the Bible into English or for anyone to own a Bible in the English language. So it brought the death penalty. If you were found in England with a Bible in English, it was the goal of the Catholic Church to keep the people stupid so that Rome could continue to dominate the lives of people. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the bishop over every bishop in England who is immediately under the King of England, wrote the Constitutions of Oxford forbidding any translation of the Bible into English. And he writes, quote, it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. Well, he's already forgotten that's what a Latin Bible is. It is a translation out of one language into another, but never mind the truth. He goes on to write, we decree and ordain that no man 
by his own authority, may translate any text of Scripture into English or any other tongue. No man can read any such English Bible in part or in whole. There was strong resistance to any Bible being produced in the English language. Thirty-one years after John Wycliffe died, he died in 1384, In 1415, there was convened in Europe the Council of Constance. It was there that John Huss was tried for heresy, and it was John Huss who was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance. And at that council, it was was voted that John Wycliffe's remains, his skeleton, which had been buried in the church where he preached in England, His body was to be dug up and removed from the sacred ground of the churchyard grave. Thirteen years later, in 1428, the Pope ordered that Wycliffe's body must be dug up one more time, and his skeleton remains be burned, and his ashes scattered into the swift river, the river that ran by the church where he once preached. There was extraordinary hatred in, the, in England from the king down to the archbishops to the bishops for anyone to have a Bible in the English language. On top of that, the common people did not even know Latin. So they would come to church and listen to an entire church service in Latin, not knowing any Latin. On top of that, the sermon, and it really wasn't a sermon, it was just a, a, a blog, it was just a, a, a homily, it too would be give, given in Latin, and the people just lived in total ignorance of the Word of God. The reality of an English Bible seemed to be very grim at this time. However, five realities turned what seemed to be impossible into being possible. 1450, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press with movable type, and the mass production of books was now possible for the very first time. 1546, Gutenberg completed the Gutenberg Bible, though it was a copy of the Latin Vulgate. 1516, We're getting close now to the Reformation. It would be the next year, 1517, that Martin Luther would nail his 95 theses to the front door of the Wittenberg Church, protesting the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. The year before Luther nailed his 95 theses to the front door of the church, the leading humanist scholar of the day, a man named Erasmus, had gone around Europe and collected manuscripts of copies of copies of copies that had come flooding into Europe because during the Crusades and the attacks of uh, the Muslims against the Christians, they gathered up many of these copies and took them to Europe for safety to be hidden into monasteries. Erasmus goes around Europe gathers these up and produces for the first time 
in the history of the church a Greek New Testament. Just remember, the entire New Testament was written in Greek. And in order to have a precise and accurate translation of the New Testament, you must be able to translate out of the original languages. And so, for the first time, 1516, there now is a Greek New Testament. It would be the next year, excuse me, it would be in 1519 that Martin Luther would be in Wittenberg, Germany. He would go up into the, the castle church. He would be up in the tower. He would have a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, his second edition, and he would be reading Romans 1, verse 17, in Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And it was seeing this in, in the original Greek language that brought Luther to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, because he saw for the very first time that this righteousness of God was not the righteous wrath of God upon him, but that it was the gift of righteousness that God would give to the one who would entrust his soul to his son, Jesus Christ. So Martin Luther, the great German reformer who really uh, was the, the leading force in the Reformation, was brought to faith in Christ as a result of a Greek New Testament. Luther would go on to say that to try to read the Bible and not be able to access the original language would be like trying to kiss your wife with a sheet between you and your wife. You just cannot make contact with the original meaning that was intended when the Word of God was written. So that was 1519. In 1521, Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms, where he made his great stand, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. My conscience is bound by the Word of God. He was kidnapped. The death sentence was upon Luther. He was kidnapped by his friends, taken to the Wartburg Castle, where he was holed up for months and months and months, and being a hyperactive man, wanting to do something, he translated the Bible from the original Greek into the German language. This started the Bible movement of the Reformation. More Bibles would be produced during the Reformation in one year than the previous 1,500 years. It was the greatest back-to-the-Bible movement in the history of the world. And all of this now is setting the scene for a man named William Tyndale to become the first man to translate the Bible into the English language from the original Hebrew and Greek. And he would be able not only to translate it accurately and precisely and give the greatest gift that could be given to the English-speaking world, a Bible in their own language, but also with Gutenberg's invention, there was the ability now to mass-produce Bibles that would sweep across England. So, William Tyndale became one of the most prodigious figures 
whoever lived whose place in history is nothing short of monumental. He became the father of the English Bible. And he became the father also of the modern English language. With every verse of Scripture that William Tyndale translated, he was standardizing the English language. There would not be an English dictionary for almost another 200 years in 1703. And so, there were multiple ways to spell every English word. There, there was no standard. Wycliffe's own name was, last name was, uh, excuse me, Tyndale's own last name was spelled five, six, seven different ways. So, every verse of Scripture he is becoming the father of the modern English language. In fact, the very first English dictionary would be at the end of Genesis, at the end of Exodus, at the end of Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. After he translates the first five books in the Bible, he puts a glossary at the end of each of those books as he is actually inventing English words that we use every day. Jehovah, atonement, scapegoat, ark. Those words do not even exist in the English language until William Tyndale begins to translate into the English language. But on top of that, William Tyndale also became the father of the English Reformation. Calvin led the Swiss Reformation. Luther led the German Reformation. John Knox led the Scottish Reformation. It was William Tyndale who led the English Reformation because he gave a Bible, an English Bible, into the hands of the preachers of England as well as an English Bible into the lay people of England. And now the Reformation is on in England because the truth shall set you free. So this man... William Tyndale was remarkable. J.H. Merrill Dubinet calls Tyndale, quote, the mighty mainspring of the English Reformation. In other words, his translation of the Bible into the English language set into motion the spread of the Reformation through England. Leland Riken notes that Tyndale possessed, quote, a linguistic genius whose expertise in multiple languages dazzled the scholarly world of his day. Brian Edwards said that Tyndale was the heart of the Reformation in England. In fact, he was the Reformation in England. And John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, called Tyndale the Apostle of England, the most remarkable figure among the first generation of English Protestants. So, who was William Tyndale? If you have an English Bible in your lap tonight, you are a debtor to William Tyndale. Even if you have a New American Standard or a Legacy Bible or a King James, every English translation of the Bible stands on the shoulders of William Tyndale who was the pioneer. In fact, in 1611, when they translated the King James Version of the Bible, 
a team of some 47 or 48 scholars meeting for a lengthy period of time, basically, those 48 scholars could not improve upon Tyndale's work one bit. It's estimated that 85 to 90 percent of the King James Bible is virtually word for word Tyndale's translation. So, who was William Tyndale? If you came into my study in Dallas, Texas, and came up the stairs and turned into my study, you would see a picture of William Tyndale hanging right over my desk. It is a replica on canvas of the portrait that hangs in the London Portrait uh, Gallery there in London, and it's a portrait of Tyndale holding a Bible and just pointing to the Bible. Every time I walk to my desk to sit down to study the Word of God and to write sermons and to write books, I see Tyndale pointing me to the book. So let's talk about Tyndale. Tyndale was born in 1494. Tyndale grew up in western England near the Welsh border. He came from a successful family who had enough resources to send him away to college. They had enough resources to send him to Oxford. Tyndale entered Oxford at age 12, which was common in that day. He entered Magdalen Hall inside of Magdalen College, and for the next 10 years, he studied at at Oxford, which was the leading university of the English-speaking world. He was brilliant. One thing you need to understand about each each one of these reformers They were stunningly brilliant men who had been educated at the very highest level. These were not backwoods preachers who didn't really know a lot about uh, learning. They were all educated at Oxford, Cambridge, St. Andrews, University of Paris, University of Orleans, University of Bordeaux, Wittenberg, at the very highest level. And they brought their brilliant mind into the Reformation and was used by God in a stunningly brilliant way. Uh, Tyndale would go on to say that as he was at Oxford for those ten years, the Bible was withheld from him for the first nine years, that Oxford did everything they could to shape his mind with worldly philosophies before anyone was even allowed to look at a Bible in Latin. He graduates with a master's of science, a master's of of art. He studies for a few more years at Oxford, a stunningly brilliant man who was proficient in eight languages. If you heard him speak your language standing next to you, he spoke it so perfectly, you would assume that he grew up next door to you, that there was no hint whatsoever that he simply had just recently learned your native tongue. He then went to Cambridge, which was the intellectual rival of Oxford in England, and there he met with a group of students who were reading Luther's works. They were coming across the English Channel, these books, and they gathered at what's known as the White Horse Inn, which was almost like meeting at Starbucks. And they would sit together and they would study Luther's writings as Luther had recovered the gospel that had been lost for centuries. 
that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in this Bible study, Tyndale comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Out of this small group Bible study will come nine martyrs during the English Reformation. Uh, Ridley and Latimer, who were who were burned together at the same stake. You remember how Latimer said, play the man, Mr. Ridley. We shall light a fire in England that shall never go out. Both of those men were in this small group Bible study, as well as Thomas Cranmer and, and, and many others. And Tyndale became so consumed with the Word of God, he realized he needed to devote his time to the study of Scripture, so he withdraws from from Cambridge, and he returns near his homeland in western England and begins to work for a very wealthy man who lived on a vast estate to be the primary tutor for his children and private chaplain for the family, etc., etc., so that he can give more thought and more attention to the study of the Bible. Tyndale begins to preach. He begins to preach the truth that is found in Scripture. And there would occasionally be Latin, excuse me, Catholic priests who would come to the estate and be there for dinner. And there was one very famous encounter, a heated debate between Tyndale and a traveling priest, and the priest said, we would be better without God's law than the Pope's law. And Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spare my life, I will cause a plowboy in the field to know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome. And at that point, he charted a course for his life that he will bring an English Bible to the people of England. He came to the awareness that the whole nation is lost, that there is a cloud of spiritual darkness that is hovering over England because there is no knowledge of the Word of God except for these lawlord preachers, handfuls of them going out into the country and, and preaching. In order to produce an English Bible, Tyndale, who had mastered linguistics, had to have permission from the church in order to do the work. So he goes to London, he goes to the Bishop of London, who he believes will be sympathetic and give him permission to translate the Bible into English, and he is denied. He is denied because the Pope knows, or the bishop knows, if the people have a Bible in their own language, they will lose control of the people. So Tyndale comes to the realization that he will not be able to produce an English Bible while living on English soil. He puts together a plan the plan is made known to a businessman, a very successful businessman in England. And the businessman said, and God bless this businessman, I will underwrite you leaving England and going to Europe to produce an English Bible. I will gather some other businessmen around, it, around me, and we will financially support you. So, William Tyndale, at age 30, 
left England, 1524, never to return again. As he leaves England, every line of every verse that he translates, there will be a death sentence pronounced upon him. He will be an outlaw of the king of England, who, by the way, is Henry VIII, the king with all those wives. He could be elected president of the United States, by the way. And Tyndale would never marry, and he would devote himself completely to producing an English Bible. So he leaves England never to return again. He goes to Hamburg, Germany, 1524, and once he establishes himself, he would live in back rooms of English merchants who would be sympathetic to the Reformation. They would give him a place to live. From there, he goes to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther is, so that he can meet Luther and talk about the Reformation, and they're sharp and his study of Hebrew that he would need to translate the Old Testament, there was not one Hebrew teacher or instructor in the entire nation of England at this time. So, he has to be self-taught in, in Hebrew, which is an incredibly daunting task, and he begins there in Wittenberg translating the Bible into the new, the, the new Testament into English from the Greek. As, he's, as this is in process, and he has to stay a moving target because there will be many attempts to capture him, he goes to Cologne, Germany, because it is the largest city in Germany that has the largest Roman Catholic cathedral in all of Germany. And his, his, his strategy is he could blend into a very large city without being noticed. He completes translating the New Testament while there in Cologne. First time it's ever been done, ever, in the history of the world. And one night, there is a man who overhears some talk in a print shop who will, that will begin to print this of what's going on and there is an attempted raid of the, of the printing of this Greek New Testament. Tyndale learns of it. Tyndale rushes to the print shop, gathers up his translation of the New Testament, and vanishes into the night. The printing had only gone through Matthew chapter 22, verse 13. He escaped under the cover of night. Where will he go? Where will he find a place of reception and find a printer? Because the death sentence will also be upon the printer who will print such a book as an English Bible. And he says, I will go to Worms, Germany. Worms, Germany is five years earlier where Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and gave his heroic stand. I've had the privilege to stand on that very piece of land and, and replicate uh, Luther's famous defense of the Scripture. So he goes down the Rhine River to Worms, Germany, and there certain things fall into place. He must find a city, which is Worms, that is on a river that flows into the, into the ocean so that a ship could take his printed Bibles down up the river into the ocean over to England and Scotland. 
It has to be near a paper mill where there's an ample supply of paper. He must find a suitable printer who will do the work and be willing to risk his life. And in 1526, for the first time, a New Testament was printed that was translated from the original Greek into English. Tyndale took these Bibles, some 2,000 of them were printed, and hid them into cotton bales, put them onto ships. They sailed to England, sailed to Scotland, and their German cloth merchants received them and began to distribute the Bibles by selling them. They sold them to students, to tailors, to weavers, to bricklayers, to, to peasants, to, to, to merchants in all walks of life. And now the English Bible is spreading through England and Scotland, and people have now a copy of the Bible that we, almost, that we take for granted. I mean, they, they felt like they were holding the king's crown in their hand, a treasure above all treasures, and now for the first time, they can read the Bible for themselves in their own language. Well, the church in England finds out about this, and they want to put a stop to it. And so they go into the market and begin to buy up every copy of Tyndale's Bible that they can and then burn them publicly, but this strategy actually only bankrolled Luther to go into a second edition. What they meant for evil, God meant for good, and Tyndale now begins the process of not only translating the, New, the, the Old Testament, but also a new upgraded version of the New Testament, plus he begins to write theological works. 1528, he writes the parable of the wicked manon, which is a defense of justification by faith alone. Let me just read you two sentences from this book. It, it, it is a defense of sola fide. Tyndale writes, Christ is yours, and all His deeds are your deeds, and Christ is in you and you in Him, knit together inseparably by faith. Neither can you be damned except Christ be damned with you, and neither can Christ be saved except you be saved with Him. And it's the truth of union with Christ, that whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us, and it really becomes the, 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 the cornerstone for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Tyndale is a hunted fugitive. In 1528, there is an attempt to search for him, to apprehend him, and to bring him back to England. The attempt failed. He must remain anonymous. There are no photographs of Tyndale. He will not sit for a painting. The, the portraits, we have two portraits of, of Tyndale, and they were both painted posthumously after he died because no one must know what he looks like when they come looking for him to arrest him. And there's another attempt made in 1528. A man named John West was commissioned by the king to come and find Tyndale and to bring him back to England, and, but it was a total failure. In 1529, he begins to translate the, the, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He moves his base of operation from Berms uh, to Marburg, and then from Marburg 
to Antwerp, always on the move, and he completes the translation of the first five books of the Old Testament. While there is a manhunt looking for him, he knows he must get out of Antwerp, so he boards a ship to sail out into the open sea in order to go down the mouth of the Elbe River in Germany. But while he's in the open sea, there is a severe storm that caused a shipwreck off the coast, and all of his translation and all of his books and all of his writings are lost at sea. A lesser Christian would have said, well, it must not be God's will for me to do this. Tyndale would not take no for an answer. And so he goes to Hamburg, Germany to start his work completely all over again. And there he is reunited with a man named Miles Coverdale, who was a part of the White Horse Inn, who would actually produce the Coverdale Bible before Tyndale would be martyred. It took him 10 months to translate Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he includes a glossary of key words at the end of each of those five books, and he becomes the pioneer, really, of English lexicography. He also wrote opening prologues to each of these first five books, and what's happening is he's writing the first study Bible. He will then later add footnotes down the side margin he, he is centuries ahead of his time. At the same time, the church in England is after T- Tyndale. And a man named Thomas Moore in 1529 launches a character assassination of Tyndale. They can't capture him, so what we can do is slander him and desecrate his name And so, Moore writes a dialogue concerning heresies, which is directed to Tyndale, in which he calls Tyndale, in this work, the captain of English heretics, a hellhound in the kennel of the devil, a new Judas, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, an idolater, a devil worshiper, filled with filthy foam coming from his writings." Well, this would not stop Tyndale in the least. It only made him all the more determined to produce this English translation. And so, the attempts continued to try to capture William Tyndale. A man named Stephen Vaughan was commissioned by the king to find Tyndale and to offer Tyndale a salary for the rest of his life and a safe passage back to England if he would only agree to stop his work and return to England, and Tyndale agreed on one condition, that the king must choose someone else to finish the translation of the Bible into English. The king refused, and Wycliffe refused, and Wycliffe continued his work. Vaughan said in a letter, I find Tyndale always singing one note. In other words, he is a man of one purpose, one agenda, and that is to produce an English Bible. Another attempt is made to find Tyndale in Europe. Thomas Eliot is, dis, is, dis, uh, is dispatched, but he cannot find Tyndale. 
Tyndale continues to write. He continues to, to translate. And Tyndale writes an answer to Thomas More. Thomas More then responds with a six-volume work to repudiate Tyndale called The Confutation of Tyndale's Answer. It was a writing of half a million words, but Tyndale remained steadfast to carry out the work. In 1534, he moves to, to Antwerp, and there he comes in contact with John Rogers. I preach in my preaching Bible with a picture of John Rogers. Many of you know this. He was the first Marian martyr, the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, February the 4th, 1555, Smithfield, London. Tyndale leads Rogers to faith in Jesus Christ. And Rogers becomes a force for God, and Rogers now works side by side with Tyndale to complete this work. In 1534, Tyndale produces his second edition of the Greek New Testament in which he makes 4,000 edits to upgrade the work, to make it more precise, to make it more accurate. Some have estimated as many as 5,000 estimates. And he writes a short prologue now in front of every New Testament book except Acts and Revelation. He has cross-references on the side. He adds explanatory notes that explain the different verses, and he begins to mark out books uh, within the literary unit uh, to show the paragraphs in books in the Bible. He, he is centuries ahead of his time, William Tyndale. And by the way, let me just mention this, which I forgot to say earlier, but just flashes into my mind. No one commissioned Tyndale to do this. No elders laid hands upon him. There was no Tim AI to stand behind him. There was no denomination. There was no church to support him. He was just a one-man SWAT team. He was just a one, he was just one man determined to do the will of God to bring an English Bible to the English-speaking people. He will not be deterred. There were 6,000 copies made of Tyndale's second edition. It sold out within a month. There was a third edition immediately after that. And, and Tyndale's work is, is just, it's just a masterpiece. It, it, beautiful prose style, which was so different from the medieval stiff style. His translation was plain, it was readable, it was straightforward, beautiful words, poetic phrases, and he intentionally now corrects the false teaching of the Catholic Church by a more accurate translation of certain words. And so, instead of do penance, he translates metanoia as repent. Instead of confess, homologeo, he translates it, acknowledge. Instead of priest, presbuteros, he translates it as elder. Instead of congregation, ecclesia, or instead of church, ecclesia, he translates it congregation. 
meaning the church is not the building. The church is the people, the elect of God. And so, he, he is wielding a, a death blow to the Catholic church as he translates this Bible. He creates phrases that are now very common to us, the twinkling of an eye, a moment in time, let there be light, the powers that be, a law unto themselves, filthy lucre, it came to pass, in whom we live and move and have our being. There, I mean, there's a thousand of these. Time does not even permit me to, to read these words. And he's standardizing not only the English language, he is standardizing the use of the English language with phrases that are used not only in the church, but in society it, itself. Finally, in 1535, after a decade, Tyndale is finally captured. His story is very sad. There is a young man in England named Henry Phillips who was given by his father a massive amount of money to take to London to pay off his father's debts and to place it in the bank. And Henry Phillips was a fool, and he began to gamble with this money en route to London and he squandered his father's entire estate with no way to recover the money. The church found out about this, and they called him in. And they said, we will repay out of our coffers every bit of the money that you lost if you will find William Tyndale. And when you apprehend him and have him put to death, we will restore your father's lost estate. So Henry Phillips had no choice but to accept the devil's money. It was the church that paid for this in England. And so Phillips left England and arrived in Antwerp. He made the necessary contacts with English businessmen who were doing, conducting commerce there in Europe, and he followed the trail that led him to the house where Tyndale was staying in a back room, hidden, and began to establish a relationship with Tyndale. The businessmen who had street savvy warned Tyndale, we don't trust this man. Tyndale was so preoccupied with his work that he was somewhat naive and allowed this relationship to develop until one day Phillips said to Tyndale, let's go for a walk there in Antwerp. You go first. And they're walking down through a back alley, came to a corner, Phillips behind Tyndale points over his head, the authorities are there waiting for Tyndale, and they arrest him after 10 years, a long decade of being an outlaw and a fugitive from Henry VIII, and they take him to a castle. They take him to the Vilvorde Castle, which is six miles north of Brussels. It is an imposing castle with a moat and seven towers, and three drawbridges, and impenetrable walls. 
and there Tyndale is held for the next year and a half, a total of exactly 500 days. He goes through harsh winters without hardly any clothing to keep him warm. The only thing he asks for is a lamp so that he can read in his dark cell, and he asks for a Hebrew Bible. He asks for a Hebrew grammar, and he asks for a Hebrew dictionary so he can continue the work knowing he will never escape. In 1536, which by the way is the very year John Calvin went to Geneva, as one man steps off the scene, the next man steps forward. In 1536, Tyndale at last stood trial, a heresy trial. And the charges that were brought against Tyndale, he was condemned for six things. Number one, for teaching justification by faith alone. The Catholic Church hates that doctrine and will repudiate that doctrine with all of the force they can muster. Second, they condemned him for saying that human tradition cannot bind the conscience. Tyndale believed that only the Word of God can bind the conscience. They condemned him for believing that the human will is bound by sin, the bondage of, sin, uh, the, bondage of the will by sin. They condemned him for teaching there is no such thing as purgatory. They condemned him that Mary nor the saints offer prayers for us, and further, that we are not to pray to Mary. Those were the charges brought against Tyndale. And so, according to the practice of the day, Tyndale would be shamed in a public ceremony in which he would be excommunicated and stripped of his priesthood. He had been ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church before he was converted. He was forced to kneel and, while wearing priestly robes, had them removed, signifying he was being put out of the priesthood. His hands were scraped with a knife or sharp glass, symbolizing the loss of privileges of the priesthood. Bread and wine of the Mass would be placed into his hands and then removed, and he would be stripped of his priestly vestments and clothed as a layman, and then turned over now by the church to the civil authorities who alone have the power of death. On October the 6th, 1536, Tyndale was paraded to the south gate of the town where his execution stake awaited. The guards bound his feet to the bottom of the wooden cross as the chain was fastened around his neck pulling him tightly to the beam of wood. The wood was placed around Tyndale to encase him in combustible material, and gunpowder is now sprinkled throughout the bush, and a chain tightened around his neck. The executioner stood behind the cross, awaiting the signal from the, execu- from the one man in charge to carry out the sentence, and Tyndale's dying prayer was, oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. Tyndale was first hung by the neck. A lighted wax torch was handed to the executioner who threw it on the straw and bushwood, and his dead corpse was consumed in the fire. But then the fire caused the gunpowder to explode, and there was nothing left to bury. His remains limply hanging from the rope, from the chain, as his body fell into the raging fire. 
He paid the ultimate price. He had translated the Bible, the New Testament. He had translated the first five books of the Bible. And then he translated Joshua through Second Chronicles. He then went immediately to the book of Jonah because he wanted every preacher in England to preach 40 days and London will be destroyed. 40 days and Oxford will be destroyed. Just like Jonah had preached, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. William Tyndale paid the ultimate price to put an English Bible into the hands of the English-speaking people, and his assistant, Miles Coverdale, completed the other books in the Old Testament that he was unable to, to translate in what became the Coverdale Bible. John Rogers then, who was his other assistant, took the Coverdale Bible, which was poorly translated from the rest of the Old Testament, and Rogers being, being a, a brilliant Cambridge scholar came in and gave a far better translation of the Old Testament, and so the work was complete. But Tyndale was willing to pay the ultimate price. So what do we learn from this? Let me just conclude with three things, and I, I know it's late, but you don't need cabbage. I mean, I, I have food to eat of which you know not of. So what do we learn from Tyndale? Number one, whenever you serve God, you've got to be willing to stand alone. You must be willing to break from the crowd. You must be willing to break from the world and from the pack. The majority is never right. The few are on the narrow path. The many are on the broad path. God plus one still makes a majority. So wherever God calls you to serve Him, there will be times when you must be willing to stand alone if your life is going to amount to anything. Second, we will always pay a price to stand alone for God. The price, as it was with Tyndale, would be loss of ease and loss of comfort, loss of friends. For Tyndale, it was loss of life as he paid this hefty price of loss of country, loss of livelihood, even loss of life. It will cost us too blood, sweat, toil, and tears. No pain, no gain. Whenever the kingdom of God is advanced, it always requires the sacrifice of the people of God. So the question for you is, are you willing to pay the price to serve the Lord to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the last thing we learn from Tyndale is standing alone leads to blessings to others. It was Tyndale's willingness to stand alone against the King of England, to stand alone against the archbishop and the bishops of his day. It was his commitment to stand alone when no one else but a few businessmen would stand with him, where the church had even abandoned him. Yet the result of that was untold blessing 
the thousands, even millions of people down through the centuries. You and I, whether you realize it or not, are the beneficiaries of Tyndale's work. Even as I hold this English translation in my hand, Tyndale's blood and sweat are on the pages of this book as he labored to produce an English Bible for the English-speaking people. So the topic that was assigned to me was the preservation of the Bible. And from the first century to the 16th century, God, by His providence, preserved His Word. And with great sacrifice and cost, it has come into the English language, first through a man named John Wycliffe, and then some 150 years later through a man named William Tyndale. These men are our people. These men are our heroes. These men are our disciples. These men are our examples. And we follow in their footsteps. And who is to say what sacrifice will be required of us for the gospel to be advanced to the next generation? This is the story of the preservation of the Bible and the story of William Tyndale. There is probably 20 times more I'd like to tell you about Tyndale, but maybe this will be enough to whet your appetite to learn about this man who is my favorite reformer, who paid a price that Luther and Calvin never paid. He died as a martyr. And he gave a gift that John Calvin never gave, and John Knox never gave. He gave a Bible into the language of his people. There's only two things that will go out of this world. It's the Word of God and the souls of men. And William Tyndale wisely invested his life in the Word of God that it might reach the souls of men. You and I will be very wise tonight if we will choose to invest our time, our talent, and our treasure in the Word of God being taken to the souls of men. May God use this tonight to encourage us, His church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such men as William Tyndale who have stood as really juggernauts of the faith. I pray that you would raise up out of this congregation here tonight men and women who would be willing to make great sacrifice in order to spread the Word of God around the world. May there be men and women here tonight who would be willing to stand alone, if need be, to stand with the few in order to reach the many. So, Father, we commit ourselves afresh to you tonight as living in holy sacrifices. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.